Hey, LCHP friends and listeners of Then and Now, thank you so much for tuning in. After consecutive 15 months and 46 episodes, we'll be taking a summer break in July and August. During that time, we'll be posting some of our favorite episodes from the past year and preparing for a new season this September. In the meantime, please keep listening, and feel free to suggest any episode for reposting by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. Thanks, and enjoy! Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. My name is Maya Ferdman. I'm the program manager for the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest this week is Dr. Carolyn Lukensmeyer, an expert in innovative political and civic engagement and a leader in the field of deliberative democracy. Dr. Lukensmeyer was the first executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona and the founder of America Speaks, a nonprofit initiative that from 1995 to 2014 promoted large-scale town halls on sensitive topics such as social security, healthcare reform, and the development of Ground Zero in New York. She also served as chief of staff for Ohio Governor Richard Celeste and as an advisor in the Clinton administration. Welcome, Carolyn, to the program. Thank you, Maya, for having me. Great. So, We are in the midst of the 2020 election during arguably one of the most polarized eras in American history. Watching the recent Democratic and Republican conventions, you might think that our two major parties are living in alternate realities. Whether addressing the necessity of wearing a mask to curb the spread of COVID-19, or the implications of racial injustice, or the validity of the United States Postal Service, these major differences make it hard to foresee how Americans can forge a collective collective path forward post-November. Is this kind of fracture unique, or is it a long-standing feature of the democratic process? Is deliberation across difference possible, and is it even useful? What can recent history tell us about the form, function, and resilience of our de- democratic culture and institutions? Uh, so, Carolyn, you are uniquely positioned to help us examine these questions. So, in order to get us going in the then portion of our episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you start your career in the realm of democratic innovation and reform? Well, Maya, I think I have to get a little bit of history for your listeners to grasp how the path brought me to focusing for the last 30 years on the health of democracy in the United States. I have to go way back. I grew up in a very large multi-generational family in the Midwest. And in that family, I was fascinated by the dynamics between human behavior and the structures or systems in which we live and work. Going a bit fast forward from that experience, what I really understood as a result of observing this at a very young age was that in order to produce meaningful social or institutional change, you have to effectively both deal with human behavior 
and with the systems and structures within which we live and work. I couldn't have used those words when I was 5, 6, 7, 15, 16, etc. But I was thinking that way. I was taking in data that way. I came of age in the height of the Vietnam War. I personally was a very anti-war protester, but I experienced the profound division in our society between people who heart and soul believed in the war, saw it as the patriotic duty of the country, and those millions of us who were on the other side protesting the morality of the war and the U.S. role in it. I was a student leader on campus during that time. And as most of your listeners will recognize historically, most campuses' governance systems completely broke down. I was at the University of Iowa and was sent with a team of faculty and administrators and student leaders to a program looking at the issues of what's leadership in that context. And that led me to spend the vast majority of my senior year in college actually designing and facilitating meetings between faculty, administrators, and graduate students. I had firsthand experience on what does it take in a room of people who are on opposite sides of an issue and they're far enough apart that the campus is not functioning. What does it take to create the container in which people can hear one another, understand what in their life experience has brought them to the hard position that they're holding, and what are those points of possible contact that they could again consider agreements that would allow the governance of the university to work again. Hmm. I pursued a PhD in what's called organizational behavior or organization design because it was the academic field that actually looked at this intersection between human behavior and systems and structure. At the end of that time, I created my own management consulting firm because I had specific things I wanted to learn. One of my final contracts in that period of my time was, in fact, with the government of the state of Ohio. I was part of a team of consultants to create the first ever true statewide strategic plan. At the end of that time, I left my position as chief of staff of the state of Ohio, which you all know is a swing state and is a hotbed of politics. I left it saying that I was more optimistic than I ever could have imagined about how public bureaucracies are easier to change than private bureaucracies. And I had the creds to say that because I had consulted with Exxon, with Monsanto. On the other side of it, I left that experience shaken about the health of democracy in our country. In Ohio, I saw how the money flowed. I saw the role that special interests played. I saw the role that huge dollars in television advertising, which today are minuscule compared to what we had then, all of that left me understanding that the public outside of elections and special interest groups had almost no capacity to influence 
government policy Mm -hmm. in a country in which our founding documents committed that we the people were the source of governance. I left Columbus and moved to Washington to be part of the Clinton-Gore administration. And what I saw in Ohio was child's play compared to what I saw in Washington. No one was interested in the collective voice of the public. Mm -hmm. They were quite willing to use polls as their source, which, as your listeners know, are only a snapshot of the aggregate of single voices at any given moment in time. So I shifted my focus. I shifted my focus to an understanding that if what wasn't working in American democracy was ever going to shift, it would have to be with huge pressure from outside the government. We are now living in a moment in time, the crisis threatening our lives and livelihood from COVID, facing up to systemic racism after the George Floyd murder in a way we never have before, the understanding of climate change as now being the norm of these very dramatic, extreme weather events. So at this moment in time, the way we are functioning, our systems and structures have brought us to a place that unless we actually have the capacity to take seriously the collective voice of the American public, and the direction desired by the vast majority of people and have that reflected in our governance process, if we cannot make this shift in this moment of crisis, I have to say I shudder for what other levels of extreme reality we would have to be faced with in order to make the decision to shift how we govern the country. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Let's focus in on on this notion of what it means to take seriously the collective voice of the American people or of any group of people who are divided in a governance process. What are the what are the pillars or the elements that have to that have to exist in a structure or in a system in order to take seriously a collective voice in order to be able to govern properly over a group of people that is divided or that has different um, ways of coming at a problem? It involves about six or seven core principles about the way in which elected officials and the general interest public would have to connect. First of all, you have to understand the context. What's the issue? We could do climate change. We could do systemic racism. We could do fair housing. You could pick any one of those things at the national level or at a local level. Once you've focused on the issue, then you need to create the circumstances. The second principle is that you need to have a representative sample of the general interest public participate in the discussion. So it isn't just who responds to the Federal Register's announcement of a public process. It's rather the government taking responsibility to recruit people in exactly the numbers that represent who lives in that jurisdiction. I'll give a local example from the work of America Speaks. 
We did budget summits for Tony Williams in the District of Columbia every two years for the eight years that he was mayor. Some of your listeners will remember that the city didn't even have control of its own finances when he became the mayor. So the first time we brought the public together to review the draft budget, it was 3,500 people from the District of Columbia matching the demographics by age, by gender, by race, and by geography exactly in that city. So when the mayor and the cabinet saw the response to the proposed budget, they knew that their entire constituency was present and had voiced their perspectives, and they worked collectively to make a recommendation. When we did Social Security on the federal level, we did events in all 50 states, and over the course of about 15 months, once again, the entire appropriate population of the country was represented in those discussions. Now, there are many ways to do it besides the America Speaks model. Most interestingly, the U.S. was a hotbed of innovation in deliberative democracy. Why is that? Because we had the, we, we had the freedom to experiment. We had the access to the technology as it was changing. And we're just, it's the entrepreneurial spirit. Almost all of that work was happening outside the government. Meanwhile, people in other countries picked up those innovations, and today the U.S. is very far behind. Many European countries, Great Britain, Germany, France, Italy, Austria, uh, the new democracies, Estonia is a real leader in this work, and in other areas of the, of the world, Australia and New Zealand are both leaders in this work. So the government itself now invites these kinds of processes. For example, in Great Britain, the parliament has sponsored regional citizen assemblies to look at the issues of climate change. At the end of the citizen assemblies in the regions, it will be a national cities assembly. Ireland completely changed its policies relative to gay people by the government sponsoring a national citizen assembly. So the challenge in the U.S. is take the roots and the track records that have been done here for several decades, but bring it into the formal governmental systems so that you have in between election cycles a way in which the public is working directly with the bodies, the Senate, the House, the executive branch on these toughest issues. How are we going to come to balance what has to happen for the economy and the environment and climate change? How are we going to balance what has to happen in terms of access to education and opportunity for black and brown people? And it will take enlightened leadership systems and structures that bring the public into the process so that we are collectively contributing to right governance. Mm -hmm. So you did this with America Speaks on the outside, but you did work with government officials. And how would you describe, you know, you say that other countries, that the U.S. was the innovator in the early 90s. 
and then sort of dropped off compared to the rest of the world? When and why did that happen? Individual elected officials in the United States saw the potential of this work and embraced it. The work we did on Social Security took place because the Senate Finance Committee, then chaired by, uh, depending on which party was in control, Daniel Moynihan and Charles Grassley, and the House Ways and Means Committee was at that time chaired by Bill Archer from Texas and Charlie Rangel from New York. So both Republican and Democrat politicians knew the time was ready for change in Social Security. And they embraced the work we did and took seriously the outcomes from across the country. The innovative work has continued in the United States and huge leaps forward from what we did in America Speaks to being able to also do this work online. And it is a mix of online and face-to-face that is the most profound. What happened in other countries was government agencies themselves. In Britain, it began to happen around the rent, uh, innovating in the national health care system. They'd come to a place where they knew there were gaps in service and where the public dissatisfaction with the national health system was increasing and creating more issues. So that was the first area in which the Minister of Health convinced the Parliament to actually use these innovative citizen engagement methods to bring the public into the process to update the system. So it it was a function of taking a larger risk to engage the public, where in the U.S., the resistance to taking that risk stayed higher than the number of elected officials who were ready to embrace it. What is that resistance? What is the substance of that resistance to to deliberative democracy that is uniquely American or that has happened in the last few, that has increased in the last few decades? People do not voluntarily give up power if the system is working in the way they want it to work. And as we have watched the increase in hyper-partisanship in the national level in the United States, this has gotten more and more evident. When a majority leader of the Senate would stand up in the well of the Senate and declare that his primary responsibility was to see that the president did not have a second term, he has announced to the country that maintaining, regaining power in that body is more important than collaborating, working with the administration to pass laws for the good of the country. So the system solidified inside Congress, and people who've written about this who are political scientists and political pundits have marked the beginning of the shift in the mid-70s and then really shifting with the contract for America where the intentional leadership was to tear down the other party rather than to look for the points of compromise that could, in fact, lead to a solution that was in the general public's interest. Now, some of your listeners may be hearing me and beginning to feel like I am somehow giving examples that are more negative about this on the Republican side than on the Democrat side. 
And once again, you can look at the data that has been well-researched by political scientists. Both parties have played a role in this deepening of hyper-partisanship and the inability to come to compromise and the lack of interest in where the general public is after the election. But merely by counting votes and by giving examples, there's wide agreement by political science across the ideological perspective that the phenomena I'm describing has been more deeply held on the Republican side than the Democrat side. So in a way, I've gone away from your question, Maya, because hyperpartisan has been so destructive to Congress's ability to actually function that it's way beyond whether or not they were resisting the wise use of citizen engagement processes. But it has now gone so far that it's fascinating that the megaphone for pushing for more engagement is coming from several directions. And these are all things I hope your listeners will follow. The National Association of Public Administrators every year does a set of memos for transition to the new president and their party and their cabinet, whoever they may be. This year, they're calling it 13 Great Challenges. And two of those challenges are specifically regarding what we are speaking about, how governance works and how citizens need to be engaged. The American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which was created by Ben Franklin and John Adams in the late 1700s because they believed government should have access to science and research, has done, I, was, I sat on a commission for two years on the democratic practice of citizenship. Our report was published on June 11th. I hope your listeners will go to the Academy's website, which maybe you could post, and the report called Our Common Purpose. There are six strategies. Three of the six strategies deal with the necessity of bringing citizens back to the table. Mm-hmm creating a civic media. We haven't spoken at all. Another part of the system that is broken down in the U.S. is now having partisanship media. Mm -hmm. So that, as you referred to the two conventions, yes, it is like we're in alternate universes. You take the same event and NBC News, you would think you were hearing two different reports. Well, let's uh, let's address that for a second about partisanship media, because I want to bring it to today in a moment. Um, but before we do, want to address the rise of social media and the development over the last 20 years, really, of a new kind of communications ecosystem. Um, what has been the role, and as you've seen it, and of media and hyper-partisanship? What is the relationship between the two, and how has that changed through Bush, the Bush years and the Obama years leading us up to today? Well, when the internet was created, we all had just enormous belief and hope that it would create a democratization process, both of people's access to data and officials' access to people's perspectives. What happened was everyone became a broadcaster. So, and that was even true before social media came on the scene. But once social media was here, the focus is mainly on 
me getting my message out to millions of people, ensuring that I have tens of thousands of followers, rather than the core skill in a democracy is the capacity to listen and the capacity to listen across difference. And yet the social media as a platform became who can be the nastiest, who can be the loudest, who can be the most discrediting. And it's taken enormous effort for people to understand that this is really a very negative impact in our democracy. And we're not even talking about how it's been used both by people inside our country and in 2016, particularly by the Russians, and again now by the Russians and other actors, to actually learn enough about the real divisions amongst people in our culture and then use social media to send messages to people who believe a particular perspective, sending them lots of disinformation to further confirm the perspective they already held. So internet media is a lot, and even mass media is now, people are mainly using it to affirm the position they already have held, the things they already believe, rather than using it as a source of information in order to consider different points of view and ultimately make up your mind based on data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I think adequately brings us to today, um, to now, the now portion of our episode, which we've touched on already. You meant you brought back um, the different universes of our Democratic and, and Republican national conventions. But I'm curious to hear how does now, how does this division and hyperpartisanship compare to what you saw directly in government of the past? Um, is this, is the hyperpartisanship never before seen or is it a remnant or a a development of what you've seen in the past? That's a great question, Maya. And we have to acknowledge that given that our democracy was set up as a majority-minority system, by definition, there have always been divisions in the country on the most important issues. And there certainly have been other times in our history, the Civil War being the most profound example, when those differences threatened the very existence of whether or not the Union would hold. And 650,000 people lost their lives fighting over that difference. The second probably most severe moment of difference in our country was during Reconstruction, when in fact Jim Crow laws began to be passed in the South, and in which the split between Democrats and Republicans and the compromises they were willing to make behind closed doors in order to ensure that Democrats stayed in power in the South were brought about how do I want to say it, the great strides that we made in the Civil War and passing the amendments to the constitutions, significant numbers of white people who held power 
came together to ensure that the structures and systems did not allow for a real opening of the issues of what it means to be a black person in the United States of America. The civil war, the civil, excuse me, the civil rights movement was the next time in the country when we really took on those issues and said, we have to make this change. And yet, tragically, after a decade of work, we watched Martin Luther King be assassinated. We watched Bobby Kennedy be assassinated. And despite Lyndon Johnson's extraordinary work to pass the Voting Rights Act, we also, at that moment in our history, stopped the progress on whether or not we would be defined dominantly in our systemic policies and culture as a white society. To me, one of the extraordinary moments of now, given that particular track that I've linked past to now, the masses of white people of all ages and particularly young people who are speaking out that systemic racism must be dealt with. Maya, I'm 75 years old. I've talked to many people in my generation, dear colleagues and friends, in your lifetime, when a major presidential race would have politicians of both parties, not the presidential candidate of the Republican Party, but many Republicans speaking about now is the time that we must undo systemic racism. So the seriousness of these issues that have been in our culture from the beginning are actually at a boiling point and more uh, unfreezing or destructuring has occurred in the last six, seven months than at any previous time in my lifetime, which gives me great hope if we are able to continue to take seriously the collective voice of people on the issue of systemic racism, but also on the issue and all the, the attendant issues that are woven into that. We do have a chance, coming back to what I spoke about earlier, by linking our governance systems to the will of the people and struggling, and it will take great struggle, to define the way in which we can undo the housing policies that still make it impossible for African Americans to actually be on an equal footing with whites. One that's real in the, uh, this, this amazed me to learn one that's real today as a result of COVID. Many middle class and upper class white and black people have moved to refinance their houses as a way of having access to, and policies restrict black people from being able to do that differently than white people. So we have so many choices that can be made to make this moment the moment when we go back to the very foundation of the country, mm -hmm. of the people, by the people, for the people, by linking collective voice in well-designed, it has to be well-designed, 
we have to set up the structures where people listen enough to understand their connection to each other's humanity and where the task number one is to understand why you feel this way, how you came to hold this perspective, rather than me headbutting you to make my perspective more, to convince you of my perspective, but rather an open discovery process where we might determine something that each of us could hold for the common good. Mm-hmm. Well, so you bring up, I think, you're talking about this this desire to really take on, um, for the government to really take on and be responsive to the U.S.'s collective voice, but the process needs to be one of open discovery and of uh, open exchange. And I'm curious, a lot of a lot of people, especially since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, have criticized this notion of civility in politics, the notion of the bringing together of diff- of having this ex- civil exchange, um, saying that it's often a false promise. It often privileges those who were privileged to begin with, particularly white people, um, and that it excludes marginalized voices. And often the only way to get that collective voice heard is through protest, through demonstration through uh, action. Um, And so can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that that's often a tension, particularly in my generation of how do we, um, how do we forge a collective path forward that is inclusive when it seems at least, you know, we're, we're based in Los Angeles. It seems like there other people are living in another world, you know, that, that our country is incredibly divided and we can't, we can't afford to see eye to eye on anything. As you know, I led the National Institute for Civil Discourse for six and a half years after the horrendous mass shooting in Tucson that killed thirteen, killed six people and wounded 13, including Representative Gabby Giffords. And so I've had to look deeply at that question, Maya. And as you well know, Words tend to change meaning over the decades, even centuries, by their common usage. And so the word civility is a great example of that. In Western culture, for many, many people, the word civility became equated with the word politeness. And when you equate civility with politeness, then the point you made about the dominant culture being able to demand civility of a polite style, that is how that happens. So one of the things that was very important in our work, I decided to really study the ideology of the word civility. And I cannot tell you how surprised and pleased I was to discover when it first was used, and what it meant. It first showed up in the 1400s in France. And in that context, what the word civility meant was the duties and responsibilities of a citizen. That is a very different take on the meaning of civility. Part of the duties and responsibilities of a citizen is the capacity to listen with respect 
to perspectives, views different than your own. There's no question, but there are times when the, the egregiousness of the offense requires protest. But we've watched in streets all over the country the same continuum that exists in our talking to one another, being either civil and respectful of one another, or in fact degrading one another by the words we use. That's when we're doing it interpersonally. What we've watched across the country are protests which have been incredibly civil and have been very much right action. And then we've watched looting, intentional, aggressive behavior, which leads to harm. And a few people have even been killed. So I think you want to look, and your generation particularly is leading in my opinion, on the ability to do protest leadership that is across ages, across races, but doesn't cross the line to violence. And what we have to sort out is how we actually, and what's the role of law enforcement, what's the role of elected officials, what's the role of citizen leaders, to track that line in a community on a given night over several months in which the protests have the impact we want them to have. Because once they move into looting and rioting and property destruction, the very people we were trying to influence by the protest have now been affirmed in their previously existing belief that if in fact you pay attention to people like this, blacks and whites who are protesting, what it does is lead to violence. Now I can go back and I can put it in the context of us speaking to one another out of the context of protest. When we are talking about a tough issue, let's take COVID masks. What a tragedy that the issue of whether or not to wear a mask in this pandemic has been politicized to the level that individual Americans confront one another in ways that are very disrespectful, very uncivil on one side or the other about whether or not they're wearing a mask. The human beings who my heart goes out to, because I've observed some of these interactions, are people who are sales clerk in grocery stores or pharmacies. In almost all jurisdictions, it is now required that you wear a mask into an establishment where you purchase food or drugs or whatever. And yet some people are taking the rigid perspective and they are getting support for that perspective by the President of the United States that it is not necessary to wear a mask. And you are infringing on my personal liberty to require me to wear a mask. So whether we're talking about protests or whether we're talking about the divide of where I talk to another person about why they are or are not wearing a mask, I think gives you good examples of these two continuums, both of which can be done civilly or uncivilly, protests and interpersonal communication. Is that helpful? 
That is. And I'm curious, though, how do you then, in a society, on a mass scale, come to a conclusion? If you have a, quote, civil, as how you describe it, conversation between someone who thinks it should be mandated to wear a mask and someone who does not want to wear a mask in a public space, how do you then come to a collective decision about the future when both of those parties are so deeply entrenched um, and and see each other's existence as abhorrent to one another. Um, how do you forge a coll- how do you transform civility into forging a collective path forward that people can live with and feel and that is just, uh, especially for those who have been marginalized? It's a great question, Maya. And I for you know the whole issue of incivility in our conversation just really highly increased after the presidential campaign in 2016 and in our office we began to get thousands of messages by email by social media even phone calls maya of people calling and saying i'll never forget one call a mother in new england we have two daughters this is in 2017 shortly after or 2016 shortly after the election was over we have two daughters. They're at school in two different elite private schools in New England. One voted for Trump, one voted for Hillary. They will not speak to each other. They're coming home for Thanksgiving. What can we do just to have a decent Thanksgiving? A Lutheran minister in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. I've been the pastor of this congregation for 32 years. We've had a congregation that is a community, practically a, a extended family. Since the election, I have parishioners who will not speak to each other. Our choir isn't functioning. So this breakdown was very dramatic. And we went about at the Institute creating as many environments as we could to bring people back together to have real conversation with one another. And to get to your bigger question, how do you come to a large enough collective support that you can move forward. Well, not just in this instance, but in our past as well, when extremism has been dominant. In terms of the rigidity, the rigid holding of those positions, in today's world, it's only about 12, max 15% on the far right, and 10, max 12% on the far left. So let's take the biggest numbers. That's 25% that are so rigid that they're not going to have this conversation. That leaves 75% of us who in our hearts and minds actually know that where we are is wrong. One of the last projects that I led at the National Institute was a project called Divided We Fall. And we brought together Trump haters and Trump lovers to create a context in which they would have an opportunity to meet one another as human beings first, before they had any idea what their political affiliation or the ideology they held was. And Maya, it was absolutely a pleasure to watch, but I'd watched it literally for decades. This is what deliberative democracy has been able to do in many, many methods, which is create the safety design the process so first we meet as human beings. We learn about one another. We learn where we came from. We learn what matters most deeply to us. And what is always the outcome, if it's well-designed, 
and is representative of the, the continuum is we discover that we actually have more in common than separates us. And we discover, yes, you may still be for the wall and I may still be against the wall, but I no longer think you are an immoral person because you are for the wall. And you no longer think I'm an immoral person because I'm against the wall. I hope that many of your listeners would go to www.dividedwefalltv.org and watch an episode where you can watch Americans come together across this deep chasm of where they started. And they actually, the last experience we asked them to create and we separated them by their ideology to work independently as blues and reds. What would you think the country needs to do next, right now, to create a more perfect union? My, one of the most amazing things to all of them, and even all of us who were watching, was both groups came up with identical suggestions for what should happen to create a more perfect union. And it included things like expanding health care. It included things that we think typically of completely keeping us divided. So for folks who would like to actually see this in action, to actually see people do this conversation across this massive divide, I really hope that they will watch that episode. It's titled, Divided We Fall, Unity Without Tragedy. Thank you. And we'll make sure to put that in the description of this episode as well for people to find it. Um, Excellent. So by way of conclusion, I'd like to ask you something that we ask all of our guests, but I think in the context of, you know, we're just on the, on the edge of November um, and on the edge of a, you know, the 2020 election where many commentators are saying that our democracy is in danger. Many are not, many are. Um, What is your fear, but then also what is your hope for the future? And also what do you learn from the past? Wow, those are big questions. My hope, my deeply held sincere hope, is that we will have the largest voter turnout in American history. Along with that hope, hand in hand, is that in fact, our secretaries of state and our post office are able to handle the combination of in-person voting and voting by mail about the integrity of our vote. That is my most significant hope in terms of the election itself. My largest fear about the election itself is that the outcome will not be respected by the loser and that the loser might use his position to actually undermine the ability to transition from one set of leaders of our country to the duly elected 
next set of leaders to our country. The last question that you asked me was, what have I learned from the past? And it's taken me a minute to, I'm having to think of how I want to say this. I think one of the most extraordinary things about American democracy is that as a system and structure, despite its many, many flaws, is committed to supporting every individual to stand in their own truth, speak their own truth, and respect others speaking their own truth. And what I've learned is when we do that, and when we make the space for including more and more people to feel the agency to do that, that is when we are at our best. And this election gives us another opportunity to take that a step further, to be more inclusive, more respectful, and really protect everyone's right to speak their truth and responsibility to ensure every other's right to speak their truth. Great. Thank you so much. I think that's a great place to close. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Carolyn Lukenspire, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Maya, thank you so very much for having me. Wonderful. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to our director, David Myers, and to our guest today, Dr. Carolyn Lukenspire, for joining us. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter, L-U-S-K-I-N, center, at history.ucla.edu. See you next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.